Good morning, Graham campus, and hello to those of you who are joining us online. We are about one week from November, which means that it is now culturally acceptable to listen to Mariah Carey, figure out which side of the family you are visiting this holiday season, and, of course, lest I forget, it's the most wonderful time of the year to figure out who we want to elect, put them in office, put all of our hopes and dreams upon them, and to be disappointed. And yes, I just went there. Every election, we tell ourselves that the next candidate's going to be better, uh, that this person gets us, this person loves her country, this person belongs to the right party, this person is nothing like that last person. Surely, the next governor, senator, judge, and or president will fix what's broken in the world. And 100% of the time, what happens? Well, the people we elect fail us, and we rinse and repeat this cycle of anticipation and disappointment time and time again. And so, you know, in many ways, the world of the Old Testament is so far removed from us, but when it comes to thinking about leaders, nations, and future hope, Oh, we share so much in common. Like them, we see that the world around us is a mess. Uh, like them, we too are desperately waiting for someone to step in and to make things right. Today, we look to politicians, but back then, they looked to the royals, the kings of Israel. Over these next eight weeks, we will be studying the era of the royals. And we're going to be paying close attention to what made them great, where they failed, and what we can learn from them. And just a disclaimer, the point of this sermon series is not to, in a really sneaky way, tell you who to vote for. But don't breathe a sigh of relief just yet, because here's the thing. We at Rainier View Christian Church believe Jesus should be at the center of everything we do and everything we are. And no domain of life is off limits to his lordship and kingship, and that includes our political desires and hopes. And in this series, we want to challenge our Rainier View family to get a bit uncomfortable, not for the sake of being provocative, but for the sake of becoming more like Jesus. To that end, we invite you in this series to meditate on these three important questions. Number one, what should we desire in our leaders? Number two, where should we place our ultimate hope? And question number three, how should Jesus shape the decisions that we make minute by minute, day by day? Okay, so before we get into some serious biblical reflection on all this, let's do a quick icebreaker. If you're in the building, go ahead and turn to your neighbor. And if you're online, uh, I want you to share in that chat box uh, who is your favorite fictional villain of all time and why? It can be Kang, it can be Voldemort, you do you, I'll be back in a minute. Let's hear some answers.
Well, hope you had a great time sharing about your villains. I'm sure some of you said Thanos, some of you said Killmonger. I know I'm just saying all these Marvel names because Marvel villains are so much better than DC. We can fight later. Anyways, so what makes a good villain? For me, I like to imagine a Venn diagram. We can kind of project it on the screen here, where on the one side, you have all the features you expect from a villain. You want to destroy the world. You want to take over the world. You have this menacing aesthetic. You have really highly questionable ethics. If a character only has these traits, this is what we call a cookie cutter villain. Think Bowser from the Super Mario Brothers movie, and yes, I'm hating on that movie. All he wants to do is rule the Mushroom Kingdom and marry Princess Peach. There's nothing more to him than that. He's not very complex. He's just a cookie cutter. Now, on the other side of the Venn diagram, if a character has none of these traits, they are a bland hero like Mario, right? Just very good, nothing going on, but things get interesting when you get in between. There you either get anti-heroes or compelling characters like Darth Vader. There's a reason why Darth Vader is consistently ranked as one of the greatest cinematic villains of all time. Why in 2023, Disney Plus still cannot move on from him and why Hayden Christensen will forever have employment. It's because Vader is complicated. Sure, he wants to rule the universe, Sure, he built a gigantic laser beam to destroy a planet, not once, but twice. Sure, he's violated a bunch of Geneva Code laws, but Vader was also once Anakin Skywalker. He was the chosen one, the greatest Jedi of the Clone Wars, the one destined to bring balance to the Force. But over time, what happened? He got jaded with the Jedi Council. He refused to process his grief. He allowed his prize to get his pride to get the best of him. His fear led him to anger, his anger to hate, his hate to suffering, and that, according to the theologian Yoda, led him to the dark side. It's not just Vader, it's bad, bad, bad. There's some complexity to him. And we're going to be talking about a complex character this morning as well. Funny enough, in 1 Samuel, we also meet a chosen one who is destined for greatness, but meets his doom in Endor. I'm talking, of course, about Saul, and yes, I'm not making the Endor thing up. Go look it up. But you may remember Saul from Sunday School Stories as the coward who could not face Goliath the giant, or as the king who tried to kill the hero David, or as the monster who massacred an entire city. But here's something we might forget about Saul. Before he was Vader, before he was the villain, he was the hero. And Israel really needed one too, because back in the 11th century BC, things were not looking too hot. Uh, to the west, you had the kingdom of the Philistines, who were the first in the area to develop iron weapons, which, by the way, was a big deal because everyone else was using bronze or farm tools. And then meanwhile, to the east, you had the kingdom of Amon, led by the infamous Nahash, who uh, watched way too many horror movies because, no joke, his victims always had to play this game of two choices, death or losing an eyeball. And, and smack dab in the middle of the west and the east threats uh, of all this between the Philistines and the Ammonites were the Israelites, lacking both the firepower and the leadership to hold off these threats. And God, as he is most often inclined to do, chooses the most unlikely person to save his people. And he reveals his bonkers plan 
to Samuel in 1 Samuel 9, 16. He says this, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines because I've looked on my people and their cry has reached me. I know that doesn't sound funny, but if you were hearing this as an Israelite back then, you would either be laughing or rolling your eyes because saying someone is from the tribe of Benjamin and from the family of Kish is like saying someone is from the Los Angeles Clippers. Nobody cares. Nobody expects anything. And even they are second rate, even in their own lousy city. And yes, Jeff, I'm also talking about the Lakers as well. They are lousy. But back to the story, God chose Saul even still. Why? Because if you look at 1 Samuel, and if you look at the chapters between 9 and 11, it's clear that what Saul lacked in pedigree, he more than made up for in character. We can infer from these stories that Saul was someone who was willing to listen to advice, who sought out God's will, who was able to empathize with the everyday agrarian farmer Israelite. It's also clear they didn't think too highly of himself because when Samuel announced to the people that God had chosen Saul as king, they couldn't even find him because he had hidden himself among the supplies. But perhaps most impressive of all was what Saul did once he became king. He didn't force people to build him a palace. Uh, he didn't look to be served. He didn't even go after the naysayers who said, how can this fellow save us? How can this clipper or laker save us? No, instead, he used his power to unite his people and to defend the weak. We read this in chapter 11. Now Nahash, remember the scary guy, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace to all of Israel. Dude had problems. The elders of Jabesh said to him, well, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what is wrong with everyone? Why are they crying? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messenger who had come, say to the men of Jebesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jebesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will surrender to you and you can do to us whatever you like. Then the next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions during the last watch of the night. 
they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Now, there's so much detail in this story we can talk about, but here's the point I want to focus in on. Saul, the Benjamite who never fought in a battle, who was a farmer his entire life, organized a group of people who were never trained, equipped them with sharpened farm tools since Israel didn't have a blacksmith at the time, and they defeated an established kingdom and saved an oppressed and marginalized community. This is huge. But even more remarkable than all that was that Saul understood early on something most of the royals of Israel never learned, that power is for serving, not hoarding. So what went wrong? How did Saul go from the hero of Jabesh Gilead to that ruthless monarch that put to the sword Nob, the town of priests with its men and women, children and infants, and its cattle, donkeys, and sheep? How does that happen? Well, the answer is power. Is that the power he used to serve and save others became the same power that changed him. After Saul rescues the day in Jabesh Gilead, we get a time jump of 42 years in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And from this point on, we read about a very different Saul. A Saul who thought he was an exception to the rule. A Saul who got out of touch with the people he was leading. A Saul who cared more about glory than obeying God. A Saul who was driven by mad jealousy a Saul who nearly killed his son in a fit of rage, and a Saul who was willing to murder his own son-in-law and an entire city of people just to stay on the throne. You may be wondering, wow, that's such a huge 180. Can power really have that sort of effect on people? And the answer is yes, and the research bears this out. Several studies have demonstrated that those under the influence of power are more likely to judge others' attitudes, needs, and interests less accurately, act on their own whims, desires, and impulses, interrupt other people, and speak out of turn, bypass complex thinking for the simplest answer, and have an increased likelihood of acting with aggression and abusing others. And if you think the last one is far-fetched, check out the controversial study known as the Stanford Prison Experiment, which had to be shut down after six days because the students who role-played as guards ended up psychologically and physically abusing their classmates. Why does this happen? Well, biologically speaking, the neuroscientist Dr. Obi discovered that exposure to power can impair a specific neural process in the brain called mirroring, which is essential to one's capacity for empathy, which, by the way, is really important. If you add to this biological reality the theological reality of human fallenness and our propensity to twist what is good, then what happened to Saul shouldn't surprise us. If just six days with imaginary power corrupted a group of college students to do some unspeakable evil, how much more can 42 years ruin a person if left unchecked with real power? Well, it can ruin everything. And it did ruin everything. Saul lost his family, he lost his sanity, and he lost the trust of his nation. But most tragically, 
Saul sacrificed his friendship with God to hold on to power, which was always a gift from God. Perhaps this is why Jesus warned us about power and why we should be weary of seeking it. Jesus reminds us in the gospel not to seek honor for ourselves, not to do things for public praise, not to exercise authority as the Gentiles do, and that those who are first shall be last and the last shall be first, and that the truly blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. You see, science just bears out what Jesus already knew, that power has a way of corrupting us what makes us human and can draw us away from God, and can make us incapable of loving our neighbors. Now, we may not be royals or politicians, but many of us exist within relationships where we are the ones who hold and exercise power. Power plays a role in our homes, in our marriages, at work, at school, between parents and children, at church, and in every aspect of our communities. And the problem is not power in and of itself, but that we tend to idolize and desire the wrong kind of power. Now we can laugh at the disciples all we want for wanting Jesus to be a warrior messiah, but the research shows that 86 million Americans prefer leaders who embody a strongman persona, who are aggressive against their opponents and willing to bend the rules for their supporters. In short, we are susceptible to exercising the wrong kind of power. And we look to put in leadership those who treat power like Saul. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to embody and desire a different better yet a higher level of power. Jim Collins, a business management consultant, argues in his book, Good to Great, that the highest level of leadership that most never attain is servant leadership. Collins' study of 11 different companies revealed that it's not just will and competency, but compelling modesty and humility in leaders that truly takes an organization from good to great. Now, of course, Jim's conclusion is not original and it's pretty much copy and pasted because this level of power is what Jesus demonstrated for us when he defeated sin, death, and evil for good. Godlike power, as Jesus demonstrated it, didn't involve iron weapons. It didn't involve gouging out people's eyes or going strongman on your enemies. Instead, Jesus exercised his God power by suffering for those who wronged him, giving up his life for those who didn't understand him, and fighting a battle that all of us were too weak to fight on our own. Jesus, even more so than Saul, understood power is for serving and not hoarding. And Jesus calls us today to follow his lead, to desire and to embody the same God power in a world that too often exercises Saul power. This week, as you go about the quotidian rhythms or daily rhythms of life, take time to honestly assess these three things. Number one, am I more enamored with those who exercise Saul power, the power most honored and celebrated by the world, or do I desire to elevate God power, characterized by compelling humility and sacrifice. 
Number two, where in my life do I hold power over others? Is it in my family? Is it in my career? Is it in my community? And have I been exercising that power in a way that resembles Jesus? And last but not least, and most importantly, what is one practical thing I can do this week to use my power to serve others instead of myself? Please join me in prayer as we close our time together. God, I thank you that you came down into this world as Jesus. And, and as you came down, you demonstrated for us godlike power that we could not imagine. Instead of overriding, instead of dominating, instead of being aggressive and oppressive, God, you showed that true power is in pouring yourself out and becoming a servant. True power is found in unthinkable humility when you sacrifice yourself on our behalf to forgive us, to love us, and to redeem us. So God, as we think about leadership, as we think about power, as we think about what we desire and, and how we exercise this thing you've given us, help us, God, to truly reflect you, to become more like you in the ways that we lead, in the ways that we use our influence, in the ways we leverage our privilege and power. We thank you for the opportunity to come together, to worship you, to fellowship together, and to hear a new life-giving word from you. And we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless.